a sultry night descends on the city. The humid summer air clings to your skin like the other woman's perfume. Millionaire playboy, Cranston Walker, has left behind the high life to protect Rosamund Syme, a woman whose ideas have ruffled more than a few feathers. Yet, Cranston senses danger from within. One of Rosamund's clients is a little too mysterious for his liking, and he's put his sister on the case, though it might be too little, too late. Find a comfortable chair and dim the lights low. It's time for Neon Jezebel. Hello friends, we will return to this exciting episode of Neon Jezebel in just a moment. But first, a word from Baby Blue Manatorine Cigarettes. Extra-dimensional pockets are the public safety scourge of our age. Areas of friction between our fourth-dimensional space and fifth-dimensional space can appear anywhere and at any moment. If one appears near you, it could have extremely detrimental effects to your psychological health. There's only one way to protect yourself from the adverse effects of extra-dimensional exposure, and that's Manatorine. Manatorine is FDA-approved to combat the psychological toll extra-dimensional pockets can have on a person. Lighting up a Manatorine cigarette while in the vicinity of one such pocket can save you weeks, months, or even years of psychological distress. Baby Blue Manatorine cigarettes are wrapped in our patented Baby Blue fast-catching paper. No cigarette paper in the world lights as quickly or reliably as Baby Blue's. Baby Blue fast-catching paper not only lights faster, but it burns hotter, too. Each strip of Baby Blue fast-catching paper is treated with a special and entirely safe chemical compound that increases the normal temperature of a lit cigarette, which means the manatorine inside oxidizes faster and gives you a stronger dose of manatorine than any other product on the market. Nothing is faster, and nothing is safer when it comes to extra-dimensional pockets. Get the relief and protection you need right when you need it with Baby Blue Fast-Catching Paper, found only in Baby Blue Manatorian Cigarettes. That's Baby Blue. Ask for it by name. And now, back to the program. Mr. Jackson Edgewater, care of the Syme Retreat and Sanitarium, Lake Placid, New York. Dear Cranston, I do hope they aren't reading your mail. I decided to bypass your man Chalk with this letter, not out of any disrespect to him, but only out of urgency. You seem to be showing signs of becoming a true detective. It seems you got something from Mother other than her chin. Your previous letter mentioned one Miss Della Kane. Shrouded by secrecy and foreboding. Well, brother dear, you may not be far off the mark. If the woman being secreted into the house through the garage is in fact the woman I think she is, you may have wandered into the belly of the beast, though the exact nature of that beast remains to be seen. The name did ring a bell, but I couldn't for the life of me find the tower. 
So I talked to one of the men who know things. He wrote me back a couple days later with quite the story to tell. The year was 1917. It was in the very earliest hours of August 17th that an alarm was raised in the Home Guard Barracks in Saratoga Springs, New York. Now, this particular branch of the Home Guard was sponsored by a number of concerned individuals of that fair township. So, while the young and not-so-young men who held down the fort had official ranks in the American Army, they were not under the direct command of any military office. Rather, they answered to the beck and call of the sort of people who can pay the government to lend them a dozen soldiers in a time of war. Now, While Saratoga Springs is famed for its thoroughbred horses and the gambling thereon, the largest employer of full-time workers in the city is actually a certain chemical company called Asclafair. Asclafair started out making patent medicines, but currently fills its coffers through the sale of cosmetic products. Shampoos are its leading edge, but they do quite a trade in bleaching cream. Around 2 a.m., the security guard at Asclofair put in a call to the barracks to report that there were trespassers in the company offices. The home guard boys were roused and set off for the office building. No calls were made to the police at this time. It seems that the owners of Asclofair felt they needed to get their money's worth out of that barracks. Our little narrative follows two of the home guard boys, Randolph and McCutcheon. They were together in a touring car, and as they approached the Asclafair offices, they caught sight of a motorcycle racing hell for leather away from the building. Doing the only sensible thing, they gave chase. The motorcycle driver wound the most circuitous route possible out of town, and our two heroes lost sight of it, only to rediscover it more than once. Finally, the motorcyclist made for the highway. From there, the home guard boys chased the motorcycle up towards a place cheerily named Lake Desolation. It was a twisting backwards road through the New York Hill Country. As they crested a low hill and made a sharp turn, Randolph, who was driving, slammed on the brakes and brought the vehicle to a grinding halt. There, on the road in front of them, nestled a few inches into the ground, was a large, glowing orb. It appeared to be formed of bright light, yet it cast no shadows. Both men reported a sudden and terrible dread overcoming them both. It lasted only for an instant, though, before simply disappearing. This, I am told, is one of those dimensional pockets you read about in the newspaper. They are points of, and I quote, fifth-dimensional space rubbing against our fourth-dimensional space. I have only the faintest notions of what all that means, but I think you have mentioned some experience with them. At any rate, standing near one for too long brings on that extra-dimensional affective disorder you wrote about before. Randolph and McCutcheon, it seems, had been very lucky to encounter it just at the tail end of its life. But even more astounding was what they saw once it was gone. The motorcyclist was sprawled out on the pavement ahead of them. According to their report, the motorcyclist had driven straight through the pocket. 
The men who know things have assured me that this is impossible, and the home guard boys did not actually see the motorcycle under the orb. But I think it is a detail worth including. When they approached, the motorcyclist, who was dressed head to toe in that leather armor they wear, was unresponsive but breathing. It was also now that they discovered that they had been chasing a woman. They placed her in the back of their car and McCutcheon rifled through her pockets while Randolph drove them back into town. The car stopped at a sheriff's station and from there an ambulance was called. The men who know things couldn't find any records from the sheriff or the ambulance. However, McCutcheon included in his report that he found a driver's license on the woman bearing the name Della Kane. Another report from that same day was filed at St. Gall's Hospital in Syracuse, New York. This one saying that one Miss Della Kane was admitted to the secure wing of that hospital with acute EDAD. The doctor on record noted that it was, in fact, the most severe case of that affliction he had ever witnessed. Another quick check over at St. Gall's, and it turns out, Della Kane is still listed as a patient in the secure wing. Secure, as in the patients are not allowed to leave. Now, perhaps this is all part of the secrecy surrounding her visits to Miss Syme. However... It seems very strange that a patient of a secure hospital wing would be visiting a counselor when a doctor specializing in her illness is not a hundred yards away. Furthermore, the men who know things tell me that it took some rather heavy measures on their part just to get this scant information. Someone, it seems, has a vested interest in keeping the whole incident off as many books as possible. Adding to the mystery is that the Home Guard report says they found no Asclafair property on Miss Kane's person or in the motorcycle. Asclafair reported nothing stolen, only a break-in. Was she rumbled before she could get what she was after? Was she even the motorcyclist they first saw? After all, they admit to losing sight of her a few times. It's all cause for concern, I believe. Do keep an eye out. The men who know things are still digging, and I'll relay anything they bring up. It's all quite thrilling, isn't it? Now, as for the rumors you mentioned about the retreat being a hotbed of debauchery, I have indeed heard whispers. Of course, the man on the street is always wont to believe such things of those who live in penthouses, so I paid no attention. Before I read your suspicions that Lucian has Rosamond's dance card, I was half convinced that she would have your full attention. Without embarrassing you, I will say I have made serious progress into Miss Syme's book. Certain chapters surprised me less than you might think, little brother, but I found it nonetheless very instructive. If ever the opportunity arises, do convey my deepest congratulations to Miss Syme. She's done some very fine work. I may try to book a meeting with her myself. I have some thoughts that I dare not share with the girls in the office. Though, I know they share similar thoughts with each other. Perhaps I should pay another visit to the Mermaid Club. 
I'm sure Pearl would have the most fascinating perspective on the whole matter. But I'll stop needling you with that. My cruelty is not boundless. Affectionately, your sister, Vivian Walker. Cranston, I've just heard. I was thinking of writing to chide you for not responding to my last letter, but I just heard on the wireless that your Miss Rosamond Syme has been kidnapped. They said that the police are looking for her, but there was no mention of you or your friend Lucian. I can only assume that you have been hard at work. If this letter reaches you in time... I hope you know that I'm willing to help you in any way I can. Sincerely, Vivian Walker. This episode of Neon Jezebel will continue in just a moment. But first, we want to hear from you. Podcasts are the newest and most exciting way to listen to your favorite audio programs while on the go. But you already knew that. What you may not know is that the success and longevity of a podcast depends on you, our valued listeners. If you've enjoyed this program, we encourage you to write a review of our show. You can do this on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen from. You can also contact us directly. Find us on Instagram at Neon Jezebel Podcast, all one word. Our announcer, Lisa Lemoire, is a continental beauty of the highest order, but you don't have to take my word for it. Find your way to Instagram at Neon Jezebel Podcast to have a look for yourself. While you're there, be sure to follow us to receive updates in a timely fashion. That's at Neon Jezebel Podcast, all one word, on Instagram. And now, we return to Neon Jezebel. Dear Vivian, I am shaken. What I have seen, what I have experienced in just a few days' time has made the world seem like the flat, wooden facade of a stage set. I thought I knew the world for what it was. Father and mother raised us behind the curtain. You know, father took me to my first meeting of the Rose and Chain when I was just seven. It was not a meeting proper, of course with the full ceremony and regalia, just a simple luncheon at the hall. But I'll never forget it. That building, I remember, looked so oppressively dull to me. Father said it was to meet some of his friends, and I was dreading a long day of sitting about meeting rooms while men in suits talked of things I could neither understand nor care for. Then he took me to the elevator and showed me his secret key. 
Immediately, my imagination was alight. It looked so strange and ancient, I was sure it had some magical properties about it. And in a sentimental sort of way, it did. Though after the events of this past week, I don't think I shall ever use the word magic in a sentimental way again. Father opened the keyhole and slid the key in. Elevators with hidden keyholes. To a seven-year-old, that sort of thing is the stuff of miracles. I was sure I couldn't be surprised by anything ever again now I had seen that. When the doors reopened, I half expected to see a unicorn or King Arthur, so I was a little disappointed by the receiving room. We didn't go into the sanctum, just the dining room. That was the first time I ever had one of old Dubois' roast beef sandwiches. Another miracle, that. Oh, bless Dubois, and may God never call him home. Father did show me the cloakroom and some of the tools used in the ceremonies. He didn't want me to be frightened of them. He wanted me to understand their meaning. For weeks after that visit, he would quietly discuss with me the reflections of those tools in the everyday world. He showed me the handshakes and told me to watch for them when I would visit him at the office. I became acutely aware that there were agreements being made behind the agreements on paper that there were enemies who did not strike with a fist or a sword, but with money and influence, that the world most people lived in was being controlled by people they had never seen, talking in rooms they would never find. Then came the day that mother and father sat us down and explained what vigilance committees were for. You probably remember that better than I do. We stayed up late to talk it over every night for a month, just you and I, wrapped in a big blanket trying to make sense of it all. Crime had had so little presence in our lives beyond the brief glimpses we caught from newspapers or the wireless. None of it had been entirely real in my mind, to realize that crime was out there, a real and solid thing, and such an urgent matter that mother and father put themselves in the midst of it. The idea that the police could be powerless against bad men flew in the face of all I believed about the grown-up world. It was so much to take in. The wireless had always spoken so unkindly of vigilance committees that I imagined them hardly better than the shopsters, lawbreakers, and criminals that they stood against. To learn that the man on the wireless was himself a masked vigilante was a blow, but that mother and father had been among them as well. It sent a chill down my spine. You remember those late-night talks, I'm sure. You probably remember them more humorously than I do. I have it on good authority that such is the privilege of elder siblings. Then came the war. I was in a malt shop when I first heard that Franz Ferdinand had been killed. It was the one down on Antoinette Street. The Collington Bowies were in town for meetings with Father, and I had been entrusted with entertaining young Eleanor. So naturally, I took her to one of our shops, thinking that making her fall in love with our soda cocktails could pay dividends later. As soon as I heard the breaking news bulletin, I asked the clerk to raise the volume on his little wireless. It was a very little import to anyone else. They hadn't had our view from behind the curtain. If Eleanor had known exactly who Archduke Ferdinand was... She hid it well, but I knew, and I knew what it portended. Father's lessons in the hidden constructs of power had been too thorough for me to be left with any illusions. I went into the war with my eyes open, 
and yet I still found myself entirely unprepared for the public manifestations of that secret architecture. And now this. You and I, Vivian, we've always known that the world hung upon strings that only the privileged ever got to see. And now I begin to feel as though the ones pulling those strings were merely puppets for some far greater master. I still need time to collect my thoughts before I recount the whole adventure to you. However, there are things that I know to be true. Firstly, you did track down the right Delacane. I believe that she was indeed a patient at St. Gall's Hospital, but I do not believe she is in their care at this time. The fact that she is still listed as one of their patients only underscores my second point. Mother and father always told us that societies like the Rose and Chain were working towards a better world, while we, the Red Silk Society, the OFF, and all the others, may have different visions of what that better world looks like and how it might be attained, we still respected each other in our disagreements. When we conflicted, we met in honor and good faith. My second point, Vivian, is that there are new societies. It seems the criminal underworld has found our playbook and are putting it to work for their own devices. At least one of these criminal societies had a role to play in the kidnapping of Rosamond Syme, though I can hardly say what it was as I have not seen the script, nor am I certain that this particular play has reached its conclusion. There are answers to be found. I'm still trying to make sense of all I've seen, but while I am reeling, I am not deterred. I should have said before, Rosamond is in good health, though the experience has wounded her deeply. I am no longer in her employ, as she has decided to retire from public life while she convalesces. Lucian will be joining her, as a friend of hers somewhere out west that will take them in. Delacane's whereabouts remain unknown to me, but they are my fervent goal. If anyone can explain the things I have seen, it is her. She is, I believe, the key to it all. <sighs> My eyes are heavy, so I'll retire for the evening with this. Please ask the men who know things to be on the lookout for a moniker. Neon Jezebel. Anything they find related to it will be of some help to me. I hope by then to have quieted my thoughts enough to provide you with a lucid description of what I have experienced. Sincerely, your brother, Cranston. Neon Jezebel is made by Zachary Westbrook. Vivian Cranston is voiced by Amy Alea. Announcements by me, Lisa Lemoyne. You can find Neon Jezebel on the web at our Instagram, Neon Jezebel Podcast. If you enjoyed this program, be sure to rate and review on Apple Podcast or wherever you are listening from. 